Hi, this is Roy's Rocket Radio, episode 98, recorded on Friday the 28th of August 2015. And the time at the beginning of the show, although this is a bit complicated because I'm actually recording the intro after I did the main bit of the podcast, but the time now is one minute past eight in the evening. But earlier this evening... At 7 o'clock, well, between 7 o'clock and 7.41, I spoke to tech columnist Hugh Collingbourne. Now, Hugh, for a number of years, wrote for Computer Shopper, and I thought, as I'm probably going to repeat in a minute, that it's about time, as part of this podcast where we talk to creatives every now and then, as well as all the good fan stuff that we have to talk about, like comics, films, etc. It's about time we had a journalist on the show. So, enjoy the interview with Hugh Collingbourne. Okay, hi Hugh. Today we have a fellow tech columnist, Hugh Collingbourne, and every now and then we have a creative on the podcast. Now, we've had filmmakers, we've had games developers... And we've had authors as well, and an actor, and today we've got a journalist. So, hi Hugh, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you for having me. Um, a journalist is, is one of the things I do, we might get on to that. I've done a bit of a bit of just about everything over the years, but yes, I mean, I've certainly done quite a lot of journalism. Okay, and uh, actually I did used to read Computer Shopper quite a lot when I, when I was a techie myself. I used to buy the thing religiously for a number of years, partly because it was so thick. Uh, it was in those days, you, you, I mean it literally was like a, the old doorstop magazine, wasn't it? Yeah. Went, uh, for a couple of, few years it was massive. That's right, it was about half the thickness of a telephone directory. Yeah. And I kind of enjoyed it because, as well as all the reviews and everything, there are a number of fairly unique, shall we say, columns in <laughs> the magazine. Yeah. Uh, one was yours, another was Wilf's, and I think Zygote, the guy who uses the oh, name Zygote, yeah. is still in there somewhere at the back. Yeah, but, I, I, I actually started from very first edition of Computer Shopper, so... Um, I go right back to the days when the magazine didn't even exist because I was, I was working on another title at that time for the same publisher. So I can, I can remember the chaos of the days before they even had an office. Where was the office actually situated? Was it in London somewhere? It was in London. It was um, just the original office was... Oh, I can't remember the name of the street. It was just off... Um, Tottenham Court Road, uh, well, Oxford Street, it's sort of in, in one of those streets that links, I think, Oxford Street to Tottenham Court Road. Um, it was originally in the basement of the building. They, they set aside a tiny little office for it. Uh, the rest of the building, it was Felix Dennis was the publisher. And he at that time had all sorts of different magazines that were to do with sports and he had Kung Fu magazines. <laughs> Uh, you know, all pop magazines, all kinds of different things. And, and you know, you sort of realized that there was a market for computer magazines. And uh, Computer Shopper was really, I think, the, his first big selling computer magazine. 
Okay, so how did you actually get into journalism or writing for a magazine as a columnist anyway? Well, I won't give you the whole history. I mean, I started writing for magazines when I was in my teens. I used to keep tropical fish and I couldn't afford to buy them. So I started writing for tropical fish magazines. And so that's when I first started. But when I got into computer magazines, that was in the early 80s. And I'd been for a few years writing for pop music magazines. I did interviews with you know, people like Adamant and Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Motorhead, Kim Wilde, a whole load of the pop stars that were around at that time. So before, um, sorry, sorry yeah, to no, interrupt you, in. but um, yeah, before we go straight into the nerd stuff, <laughs> so uh, I did notice on your Amazon profile that you have a book which is all about your articles from the 80s. Uh, interviewing pop stars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is there anything you can tell us about that? It sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, there is there is a tenuous connection with the computers, so I'll, I'll get that in shortly. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the book is just a collection of some old articles, some old interviews I did. Um, it's just called Neon 80s, the book. And I also, I've also written some novels uh, which are kind of like my life in the 80s except they also, I also the, the main character also solves murders which <laughs> I have to admit I didn't really do but apart from that it's it's set in the sort of world that I inhabited at that time the way that that led me into computers mm. it actually started it goes back to when I remember it quite vividly I, I just interviewed divine do you remember divine uh, you think you're a man big huge cross-dressing had been a film star in underground films and then came on and did some sort of uh, stock aching waterman type um songs oh yeah i remember quite clearly i think he died he, he died quite young yes just as he was getting he, he moved out of the underground world of pink flamingos was one of the big films he did and he'd come into pop music and then he's starting to get some roles in mainstream films but i think it was a heart attack he had he was quite young but he, he was he hadn't lived the healthiest lifestyle he was extremely overweight and i th i think it just took its toll which is very sad because he's a lovely lovely person one of the nicest people i ever interviewed actually um but the, to get the computer connection after i interviewed him i went to his management office in britain and they were using i think it was an old apple II. And they were writing things in there and making mistakes. And when they made a mistake, they just deleted it. And there was me with my typewriter, you know, my Tipex. And when I made a mistake, I had to Tipex over and type over again. And taking carbon copies of everything. And I thought, you know, they, I ought to come into the modern world. And this was just about the time. It was just after IBM had launched the PC. And so I started looking around trade computer that I could afford. I couldn't afford an IBM PC. They cost an absolute fortune and they came with nothing. You, you, you know, you, they cost a, f a few thousand pounds for the PC. And then you discovered you had to buy MS-DOS, which was, I don't know, a hundred or so pounds more. And then you discovered it didn't come with a keyboard and it didn't come with a monitor and it didn't come with a hard disk. And it had you know, about 64K of memory. So by the time you added on all the extras to get a workable system, it was horrendously expensive. So I eventually got an Olivetti M24. Olivetti had just got into the, the PC market. 
And that's how I started uh, using computers for typing out interviews with all those pop stars I was interviewing. And how I got into tech journalism was, well, it really came about because I quickly became frustrated with the fact that the word processor I was using, which was Multimate at that time, was full of bugs and kept screwing up my copy. And I couldn't figure out why, because I had no concept of how a computer worked. You know, I didn't know the difference between memory and, and storage on disk. And so I decided that I had to learn how to, to program. I started with the free version of BASIC, GW BASIC, quickly decided that was so horrendous I couldn't live with it. And then I moved on to Turbo Pascal. And from there, you know, I never stopped, really. And it's interesting you started with GW BASIC. I started with, well, I started before that. I think it was the BASIC that came with the Commodore 64, but only has a little hobby. I remember actually using QBASIC, and it was actually quite good. So <laughs> I used that for a number of years. I did try to switch to Pascal, but I thought it was so laborious, the amount of code that you had to write. Did, 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 did you try Turbo Pascal or was it some other source? Of... Oh, it was, but Turbo, I think QBASIC was actually a bit ahead of it by then, and right. Pascal was being used a lot less. Yeah. It was I... just before that point where uh, Visual Basic became big. So. Yeah, that was, was a few, a few, I mean, we were talking a few years before, before then, because this was even before Windows yeah. that I was... Um, you know, I, I, I was using Turbo Pascal. This was, oh, what, what year would it have been? It was 83, something like that, I think. Oh, right. So four. you must have got a computer or access to a computer about three or four years before me. I mean, the, the first, um, uh, it the was, first uh, PC, it, anyway. Yeah, it was, it was really early on in the days of, of the, the PC. Um, and... GW Basic, I remember, it had all these line numbers. You want to insert a bit of code, and you had to leave 10 line gaps. You know, it has to have line 110 to 120, because you might want to put some more code in. That's right, yeah. If you had 110 and 111, there was no space. It wouldn't let you put any more. I mean, you know, it was horrendous. But no, I got um, Turbo Pascal 3.2, it was. It came with a little paperback book and a single floppy disk, five and a quarter inch, and the compiler and the editor took up, I can't remember, it was like 30, 40K or something. It was, you know, there's practically an empty disk. And um, it was so optimized in those days, the, the compiler and editor, that it was absolutely tiny. So I used to, I took a copy of that onto another floppy disk, and then I saved all my code onto the same disk as the compiler itself. Because there's loads of space. You know, how, how could you possibly write a program that could take up more than... Uh, uh, you know, five hundred twelve k floppy disk. Did you ever? That time seemed impossible. Did you ever manage to make your word processor? I to write one. No, I didn't write one. My first big project <laughs> was um, an adventure game. My, I decided, came across Zork quite early on. Oh yeah, and, and that was the first thing that struck me as magic. You know, like I could take it, the idea that a word processor or a database was just a computer program. But when I came across Zork and it had this landscape you could w walk through and take treasures and, you know, an hour later you'd come back and it would remember you'd taken the treasure and it would remember you'd put it in the, in the sack. 
And I'd forgotten that. I thought, this is magic. How does it remember this? So I decided I wanted to learn how to write an adventure game. I spent the next year writing an adventure game called The Golden Wombat of Destiny, which I released in the public domain. And to this day, I still get people sending me emails saying, I remember The Golden Wombat of Destiny. I played that for, you know, weeks or months until I solved it. And now I'm playing it. I mean, they often say, now I'm playing it with my grandchildren, which really depresses me. <laughs> Makes me realize how long ago it was. But uh, that was a huge learning experience. I literally went from the sort of programs that, that were the Hello World, uh, you know, sort of few lines of code, to writing this massive, massive adventure game with thousands and thousands of lines of code. Uh, and you can imagine it took me a year to do this. By the end of that year, I was stuck with code I'd written at the beginning of the year, and it was like code written by an idiot because I knew nothing about programming when I started. But it was the greatest single learning experience uh, I've ever had in programming. You know, I just would not have learned anything like that amount if I just followed through the standard programming book just to go in there and undertake this ludicrously ambitious project. Was, was the best thing I could have done, really. And so how did you get on to the actual writing for Computer Shopper then? Writing for Computer Shopper, right. I, now what is that? Ah, right, I remember. The, I did a couple of reviews for What Micro. Wow, and I can't even remember that. <laughs> yeah, they were trivial reviews. I mean, they were just a couple of hundred words or something. Okay. And one of the other people, one of the other journalists said, oh, the, um, he also worked for, uh, for Dennis Publishing, Felix Dennis's company. And this, the, uh, the, at this time, the Amstrad piece he had just launched. And Dennis were launching the buyer's guide to the Amstrad PC. And he said, look, they're really stuck over there. They've decided to launch this buyer's guide, and it's going to review like a thousand peripherals and pieces of software. And it's got to be out by Christmas. And this was like, you know, the end of November or the beginning of December. So it was just a couple of weeks to get this thing done. And they said they're going to do thousands of this. And they've only done about 30. Um, you know, go and see if there's any work. So I, I gave them a call and said, you know, can I do any software reviews? And, and for about two weeks... Every day they sent round literally a sack full of software that I had to un unpack, install, write about, you know, 100 words on each one and get it done in, in two weeks. And at the end of this, the, um, the publisher came to me and he said, look, we've decided to make this a regular publication. There is no way that I can stand editing this ever again. Do you want to be the editor? And I said, okay, fine, I'll be the editor. So I then edited that. They changed it later. They called it the PC Buyer's Guide. They took the Amstrad out of the, the name so it would be more, um, you know, it covered the other varieties of PC that were beginning to be launched. And I did that for a, a couple of years. And meantime, they decided to launch Computer Shopper, and it was the same company. So the, um, in fact, the, the publisher who'd, who'd edited the original PC Buyer's Guide, Amstrad Buyer's Guide, came to me and said, do you, want to, do you want to write something and do you want to write a column? And I said, right, fine. And that's how I ended up with Computer Shopper. And you remained with them for quite a number of years. Like, quite uh, a while, yes. I, I eventually 
got poached by um, PC Plus, effectively. Um, I'd been writing a bit for PC Plus, and they wanted me to write a column for them. And I said, well, I can't really write a column for two magazines. And they said, well, we'd really like you to write this column. And, you know, they eventually, what, eventually did it for me. They said, well, we're also doing a, a cover DVD or cover CD, it was in, in those days. And why don't you do a, a video column on the cover as well? And I said, what's a video column? And they said, we don't know. We've never done one. <laughs> so I said, okay, that fine. sounds interesting. So at the time, I'd been with Shopper for quite a few years. So I, I just decided then, you know, I'd give something else a try. And I, I went on and, and did um, a column in, in PC Plus and also a video column on, on their cover CD or, or later their DVD for, for a few years. But I can't remember exactly when that was, but I'd been with Shopper for quite a while by that time. So this video column, was it like, I don't know, a predecessor to YouTubing? Well, it was very low resolution, I can tell you that, because right. it was all squeezed onto a CD along with all sorts of other things. Um, but what it was, the first one, I just turned up and they had a little video studio there and they said, well, do a video column. And so I sort of talked to camera about software and stuff. And I looked at it when it, you know, went on the cover disc. Oh, God, this is so boring. We've got a video studio. Let's do, you know, let's do films. So I had a word with the person directing it, uh, Wendy Smith, who was doing all the directing at that point. I said, look, let's do something a bit more ambitious. You know, let's do something with a plot. And so I started writing like little sketches. And then later on, we did all sorts of strange things. We, when we covered Comdex in, in Las Vegas, I did two columns. One which is the boringly serious one where you go around and interview industry commentators and what have you. And then I said, well, Las Vegas, that's quite near to um, Area 51 where they have aliens. Let's go out there. Let's go out into the Nevada desert and see if we can find some. So we went out there and we went as close as we could get and they were all, you know, armed soldiers on the side of the road watching us with their guns on it ready and and eventually we decided that you know when it said that got to a sign saying something like do not pass this sign terminal force is authorized that uh, yeah it's time to turn back but we did all kinds of stuff we did a village people sketch you know we got um did a version of in the navy called on the on a pc with all the music and just, you know, silly things, really. And um, I also did, a, on the basis of that, a bloke from, a producer from the BBC phoned up the office one day and said, you know, I, I love these things you're doing on the cover disc. Why don't you come and do some stuff for us? So I went and did a few things for one of the BBC digital channels that was um, around at the time in the, when was that, late 90s. So, um, yeah, that's how, that's how that all came about anyway. But it was before YouTube. And as I say, the only trouble was that the video resolution was so poor that if you look at it these days, it, you know, it's, it's very uh, ropey quality, which is a, a shame because we did some quite fun uh, pieces for that. Yeah, it's funny about video quality. Just a couple of years ago, I think I was saying on the podcast that, oh, you know, we don't really need 4K. I don't mm. really want to see the pores in people's faces. Yeah. But now when I compare the old, uh, you know, 180, uh, sorry, 1080, yeah. actually with the 4K, especially when you're walking around a shop, you think, oh, 
<laughs> well, I think it's inevitable that the resolution's going to get cranked higher and higher. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the old YouTube ones, and they they now, you know, some of the, the old original YouTube ones before they had HD on YouTube, and they look like, you know, ancient technology. Um, but uh, it's amazing how rapidly everything changes and your expectations go up and up. So, it's just a shame we weren't around at the time to do it. We were we were a bit ahead of ahead of the game and the stuff we were doing and working with uh, technology that wasn't really really there at the time. It's funny you mention Amstrad PCs because that was uh, my first PC. I think it was an eight hundred three eight six SX. Yeah. And it was awful, but I, I, that was my first PC. And it I, did cost I remember an arm and when I was editing the Buyer's Guide to the Amstrad PC, somebody put their Amstrad in the office too near to the, um, to the radiator. And then when they moved the monitor, it, 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 it had got so soft that it had the imprint of their hands in ever, ever after. You could actually see all the fingerprints digging into the monitor because <laughs> the plastic of the monitor had softened by being too near to the radiator. Mine, they, were, they were not the most robust of builds, but they were fairly cheap for the day. Yeah, mine eventually caught fire. And, <laughs> but yeah, it's not a metaphor. It literally caught fire. Yeah. <laughs> I still have the keyboard, though, buried at the bottom of um, a box. So every time I see Alan Sugar on the TV, I can wave my fist at it. <laughs> So I mean, the Amstrad's really did, though. I mean, they did get PCs out to a lot of people that, who otherwise wouldn't have considered buying one. Because, you know, the, at that time, we were still, PC was still aimed mainly at the business market. And, and the, the prices were much higher then than they are now. And not just higher relatively, but actually in, you, you know, you, you would pay several thousand pounds for um, a, a business quality PC in those days. Uh, whereas you know you get the much much more highly spec PC these days for you know just a few hundred pounds. I think when I bought it in, it must have been the late eighties, just coming up to nineteen ninety maybe. It was, I think it was eight hundred and ninety nine pounds. It was an immense fortune. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I wanted to get a mouse. I I had to. Um, this is, I had to get it on expenses because we were doing the, the magazine and we had to review something that needed mouse control and computers didn't usually have mice at, in the early days when I was uh, working on, on the mag. And uh, the cheapest mouse I could get was over £100. And it was just incredible. Uh, you know, you, you quickly get used to how cheap things became. But, uh, and the first modem I had, which was, uh, what was it, 300 board or something, uh, you know, be un completely unusable these days, and it costs something like seven hundred pounds. Uh, you know, the the, the, st the stuff that we were using then would be totally unable to deal with what it would be required to do these days. But the prices were just enormous. I had on the first PC. It came with MS DOS five, and it came with this. GUI called Counterpoint. I can't remember who made it. Oh, I missed out on that one. But it was 
wasn't terrible, but it was so badly configured that it sucked all the memory from your system. So whenever you tried to launch anything from the GUI, it would crash. <laughs> it was, I, I, rem I remember in the early, very early days on What Micro again, I did a review of um, uh, of windowing. What were they called? Not operating systems. They used to have a shells. No, there's some name for them. Win windowing. Oh, I know, I've forgotten. Okay. Anyway, you know what I mean. It's it was Windows Two was one of them, right? And Taxi and Gem was the other. Yeah, you're talking do, about do you the Taxi. Same we used to have thing. Professor Heinz Wolf's mother advertising it on television. Taxi Epson Taxi. No, it was supposed to be so simple that Professor Heinz Wolf's <laughs> mother could use it. No, but I do remember Gem. Yeah, and then there was another one called, oh, what was that called? X something, which was not a graphic one, but did multitasking in overlapping windows. Um, forgotten what that's called. Now, I've probably still got it in a box somewhere. It's funny, uh, I run DOSBox on my machine to play old games and just fiddle around with old DOS things. And uh, I did try, just out of nostalgia, running Windows 3.11 on there and it works fine but it's what's much better than that is that old norton commander shell right yes i remember that it's the only one i've found that works <clears throat> really really swiftly i wish i had it back then mm. yeah the uh, it was it's difficult to, to remember back i mean there's a whole generation of computer users who won't even understand the problem but there was no such thing as multitasking when, when I began using a computer, not on a PC. You had one program at a time. It was all text-based. You didn't have graphic screens. You'd load up your word processor. You couldn't switch to a spreadsheet. You'd have to switch, close your word processor. And, you know, go at the system prompt, navigate to some different directory, type in some command to load up Lotus123 or whatever you're running. And, you know, the idea that you could switch from one to the other or copy text from one to the other or pop things up in Windows, that, that, was, uh, that was like science fiction. You know, it just <laughs> computers weren't like that. Okay, tell us uh, something about the column that you were writing. Was it Rants and Raves? Rants and Raves, yes. That was the one I wrote in Shopper. And they also kept the name when I moved it to, to PC+. And I think they had two competing Rants and Raves because I think we got somebody else to take over the Rants and Raves column in Shopper. And then PC Plus originally <laughs> decided that, I, I don't think they ever did it, but they were, there was serious talk that they're going to put on my Rants and Raves in PC Plus, the subtitle, The Original and Best. But I don't <laughs> think they did that. Um, but yes, the, 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 and I tell you that the reason, the only reason it was called Rants and Raves was the, the Shopper to, uh, asked me to write a column and I put in my copy. And I couldn't think what to call it, so I just put a little note. I said, here's a general sort of rant about something. And the, the copy editor saw that and saw rant, rant. Oh, yeah, rants and raves. We'd call it rants and raves. And that's how the, the name was born. And uh, I just used to write about anything that took my fancy, really. There was no brief. You know, the editor never said, do you want to write about something this week or this month? I just used to do whatever I fancied, which was which is the, the best way to write a column, really. Any particularly memorable columns? I can't remember any of them. <laughs> I, I wrote so many of the damn things. I mean, you know, I, I God, memorable columns. The thing, the thing I remember is that you never knew whether anybody was reading them because there was no feedback. There was no, you know, I wasn't getting email. There was a, a, a 
they eventually did a, a, a forum on kicks, which was like a bulletin board system, but not open to the internet uh, as, as we expect it to be nowadays. You, you know, everybody had to be a member mm-hmm. and you could uh, leave messages on there. And that's the only place I ever got uh, feedback. Occasionally you'd get some, some little fight over, you know, I might have written about Modular 2, which was programming language that was uh, the successor to, to Pascal. And then you get some fight between people who thought C was great and Modular 2 was rubbish and rubbish was great. I mean, it's the same you get these days, except it's Python people hate Ruby and Ruby people hate Python. But, you know, you get the fights between people. If, if I'd taken the side of Modular 2 against C or vice versa, they, they'd, uh, they'd have a little fight on there. But um, I very rarely got any feedback. That was the, the main disappointment, I think, in looking back. You didn't know if anybody's reading it. I mean, you know, it's now... People like yourself say, well, I used to read it. But at the time, I had no idea. Yeah, I very rarely get feedback on the podcast, on the newspaper column that I used to write. It's interesting. You try and make your column more and more interesting, more and more controversial, (laughs) just to see if you'd get a reaction. And I was always surprised and somewhat disturbed that the editor would never edit, well, would never censor my column. (laughs) I don't think I ever got any. I don't remember any get anything getting censored. Um, I'm in a pre in my previous existence, I had one or two problems. I did succeed in getting a pop magazine seized by the police once, uh, <laughs> and banned by Smiths for three months. What? What did you do? I well, it was in a magazine called Flexi Pop. Oh God! And we we used to do um, we used to do photo stories. Uh, get you know various pop groups in, and we'd script a photo story and get some ridiculous sort of uh, script done and and put together with all bubble speech bubbles and so on. And the editors, there are two editors, and they went away at the same time on holiday once, and so I had completely free reign without anybody knowing what I was doing. And we decided we we're going to do a a spoof of Mad Max and call it Bad Max Two, and it fe- featured a rockabilly group called the meteors and we decided they were going to be cannibals so at the time the art editor was a bloke called mark manning who later went on to become a uh, rock god by the name of zodiac mind warp no way <laughs> and he and i and the photographer neil matthews went down to king's cross where there was an old uh, scrap car yard took the meteors with us and beforehand, we decided, as it was about cannibals, we were better rather than eating human flesh. So we went to the butchers and said, have you got any giblets? And they brought us a bucket of giblets. Have you got any blood? So they brought us you know, <laughs> half a bucket of blood. Any bones? <laughs> so we're, mean, not, we're not actually talking about props here. We're talking no, about... All, yeah. <laughs> and we went down to this used car, this car. This is like representing the end of civilization, all these derelict cars and drape the meteors in them, and there's this ludicrous story about how they, you know, going around searching for people to eat. And then we had this, we had all sorts of quite good special effects. With we had, Somebody brought, I think Mark had found uh, a, um, an artificial hand, so we had somebody having their hand chopped off and blood coming out everywhere and giblets, and somebody having their, you know, bits of their body cut off and eating bits. I mean, it was really, it was pretty gross. This was for a teenage magazine, you remember, for young teenagers. 
And um, so we came back. And when the editors came back from holiday and they had the film strips turn up, I remember there was a, they had a woman secretary there at the time. She always used to check the films that they turned up. She checked them and she actually fainted when she saw them. <laughs> And the editors then were a bit panicked because the magazine was just about to go. And so they got marked to say, we can't have all these giblets and hands cut off. So you had to put all these special um, sound effects, splat, tear, rip, over all of our best special effects to hide the, the gorier bits. Worse than that, the cover that month had Haircut 100 on the cover, who were really sort of nice, yeah. teeny, clean living. And Buck's Fizz was on the Flexi Pop. On, on the um, flexi disc, so it's kind of really nice, clean living kids on the cover, and on you know n- nice bucks fizz, and those really gross, <laughs> violent. Anyway, they thought they might get away with it by putting all the sound of the splats and things, but they didn't, because a granny from Blackpool discovered her granddaughter reading it, complained to the police. The police went and seized it from the local W. H. Smith. W. H. Smith got hold of you know heard all about this problem they banned it for flexi pop for the next three months and it caused a hell of a problem all because of this uh, this photo story but it was fun to do i didn't do that for computer shopper okay and the other thing that you mentioned I think in an email when we were corresponding about setting up the podcast, tell us the Richard O'Brien story. The Richard, oh, well, that was another magazine. Now, the person that used to edit Flexipop, um, or one of the editors, Barry Kane, and I decided that we would go back in the 90s and have a go at an adult magazine. And so we came up with a magazine called 18 Rated, and it was a, history was about to repeat itself. <sighs> You know, we should have learned from the first time around. But this wasn't going to be about pop stars particularly. It was just, you know, it was just going to be silly things, just silly articles, silly interviews, um, you know, a, a bit outrageous. But I, mean, I didn't think there was anything terribly bad about it. But anyway, the first magazine, we had a, 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 an article about a man who did impersonations with his bottom, Elvis Harris, the amazing bottom impersonator. And he was the, the cover star. His bottom was made up to look like Elvis Presley. And in that issue, we also decided to uh, interview Richard O'Brien, who, who, of course, wrote the Rocky Horror Show, amongst other things. And we were going to challenge him to really to, to follow the, the whole theme of, of cross-dressing from the Rocky Horror Show and go, take him to uh, a professional uh, uh, Outfitters for for uh, transvestites and transsexuals called uh, transformations. Some, that was somewhere near Euston or King's Cross, and getting done up, you know, by by people who who specialised in that. And it was quite funny. He was going around. He's as you expect him to be in, in those days, t- totally bald, uh, with black leather jacket with all spikes and stuff on, and picking his frocks. And he decided he was going to be a uh, one of them. He was going to be a blushing bride in all the white veils. And the other one, it was some long, slinky number, evening gown with a, I don't know what it was. It was <laughs> some, some outrageous dress. And he's, I was just watching him going, picking out these dresses. And he started singing uh, Stand By Your Man, the Tammy Wynette number. And if it hadn't really occurred to me until I started listening to the lyrics, how appropriate it was. Because sometimes it's hard to be a woman. 
And of course, that's exactly what he was doing with dressing all this stuff up. And uh, then later on, he took me to, we met up, we went to Joe Allen's and met up Lionel Blair, of all people, who was on the next table. And then he came across, Lionel Blair was looking at all the pictures of, of, of Richard O'Brien we'd done. Right, Lionel Blair wanted to be in the magazine. He said, I'd love to be in your magazine. I want to dress up as Dracula. But unfortunately, that never came about because, as I say, it's history repeating itself. Smith's banned us again. So uh, we only got two issues of that out, and we were, we were totally banned throughout the length and breadth of the land. So you didn't really have a problem with the authorities or censors. You just had a problem with the distributor. We couldn't get distributed. They said, first of all, because we had um, Elvis Iris, the amazing bottom impersonator, we had his bottom dressed up as Elvis Presley. <laughs> it was very tastefully done. You know, there was, there was a plastic nose over, over you know, where, where the cheeks meet. And there's a wig on the top, and it was all painted in his face. And, and he also did Sir Winston Churchill, complete with a cigar, which I'd probably better not describe in detail. Um, and we got him on television as well. We got him on the James Whale show, uh, Elvis Iris. Went up to the TV studios, and he's, he performed, uh, he mimed Elvis Iris's, uh, not, uh, Elvis Presley's Hawaiian wedding song, I think it's called. Is it Hawaiian wedding song? Something like that. He mined it live on television. The only mistake he made was that when he came out of his dressing room onto television, he forgot to wear his jockstrap, which he was supposed to have worn. So they quickly sh- shunted him off again and brought him back um, with the cameras carefully positioned. This is the sort of background that makes a good tech journalist, you know. If you haven't done this, you, you can't do the sort of uh, writing serious uh, computer programming articles. Uh, it would be, it, it's an invaluable training. But um, no, that was, that was, again, great fun to do, that magazine. But Smith's uh, just you know, made it impossible for us to distribute it. So uh, they objected to, to Elvis Harris's bottom dressed as Elvis Presley. Yes, it does uh, seem and like And there's no getting, getting back from that. It does seem like that particular person had a very, very uh, I don't know narrow... if it was the same person or maybe just Smiths in general, but once they, they distribute not only to WH Smiths in the high streets, but they distribute to all the little news agents. And so if you get Smiths refusing to distribute you, it means you can't get the magazine out. Um, I mean, you, you know, these days you just say, oh, we do it online, but uh, that was not an option then. No, I was just thinking of your, um, what was the name of this bloke with the bottom? Elvis Iris. Yeah, I was just thinking, he had a very, you, very specific talent. Do you know Cockney rhyming slang? Talent. Yeah. Hmm? Do you know where the Cockney rhyming slang, where that comes from? Uh, Elvis. Elvis Iris, yeah. Aristotle, bottle and glass, and you can work out the rest. Oh. <laughs> that is authentic Cockney rhyming slang. <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch, but okay. <laughs> Uh, if you, uh, it, uh, Aris is, is Cockney rhyming slang for, for bottom. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that, but um, I discovered it in the days of Elvis Aris. Okay. And when did that start to end, the, the work at the magazine? And w- what have you done since, actually? Oh, I've done loads since. I moved away from London about 20 years ago. So although I was writing for PC. Uh, plus, and a few other magazines, and I've you know written for quite a lot of tech magazines over the years. Um, I did quite a lot of things. I, I ran a, a, an exotic plant nursery for about ten years, and then I set up a software company, 
Sapphire Steel software, and we created some uh, IDEs for Visual Studio, one for programming Ruby, and one for programming ActionScript. And then I wrote a book called The Book of Ruby, which was published by No Starch Press in the States. And around that time, which was, was it about three and a half years ago, something like that, uh, Udemy uh, was setting up, which is an e-learning platform in uh, in the States, and they contacted me and they asked me to do a Ruby course for them. And at the time, they they were a tiny company. I mean, they were, you know, just, I, I don't know how many people there were, were working there. It was four, you know, four or five, I think, if that. And um, so I was one of the early... Uh, instructors on on Udemy, and they've become absolutely gigantic. I mean, they have tens of thousands of courses there now. But uh, my Ruby course became successful, and since I've done a course on uh, C, the uh, C course is, is uh, become one of my top uh, courses on Udemy. And I've done recently my most recent course is one about programming Java, and I've also done one on JavaScript, one on uh, object Pascal. Um, so, so that's mostly what I do now is I teach online programming. Where can we actually find you on the web? All over the place. Uh, for my courses, you can go to bitwisecourses.com uh, and also on udemy.com. If you, you'd have to search for me on, on Udemy, where I've got quite a number of courses for general tech stuff. Uh, articles go to bitwisemag.com bitwisemag.com i've got some of my old rants and raves columns on rantsandraves.co.uk uh then i've got some of my 80s related stuff on um two two sites there's 80s empire eight zero digits 80s empire.com and some of the books, links to books I've published on darkneon.com. That's probably enough to get started with. I'm probably on a few other sites as well, but uh, <laughs> that covers quite a bit of what I do. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today, Hugh. It's Thank you. A, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's about time we had a journalist on here who's had a work record in journalism slightly longer than mine. <laughs> Probably slightly uh, more varied than many people as well. I don't know of quite a, any other tech journalists who've got quite as many magazines banned as I have. <laughs> well, okay, thank you, you. Okay, thank you. Thanks, bye. Right, bye. That was the interview with Hugh Collingbourne. I hope you enjoyed it. And this was Roy's Rocket Radio, episode 98, recorded on... Friday, the 28th of August, 2015. And the time at the end of the show is six minutes past eight in the evening. Have a great evening. Be sure to catch the next episode. We are rapidly approaching episode 100, where we'll have to do something special. And that's it for now. Bye. <laughs>